0: Hey everyone, this is Russell. I am recording today from Romney, New Hampshire, where my new home is, at the foot of the White Mountains, and it is glorious here in October. I'm bringing you today Paul Millard, who I first came across after reading one of his articles on Medium called "Navigating Life Without a Map," and it was one of those articles that I sort of wish I had written myself, and. Then I started reading more of his writing, and I felt that way about a lot of it. So I reached out to him and got him on the podcast. He is quite humble about his background. He went to grad school at MIT. He worked for some of the biggest consulting, management consulting companies in the world, BCG, McKinsey. And then he got off that journey in the business world and started doing his own thing. And his story is really interesting in that way, but even more than that, he has thought deeper about questions of your path and your identity than most people have. Today, he lives full-time in Taiwan. He has his own career coaching business and a few online courses about navigating life uh, without a path. I think you should check them out. I'll link to them below. And in the meantime, I give you Paul Millard. Paul Millard, welcome to What Really Matters. It's great to have you uh, coming to us from Taiwan.
1: Fantastic to be here with you, Russell. Excited to dive in. I've enjoyed some of your writing, and uh, let's dive in.
0: Sounds good, yeah. I, I, I first learned about you coming across an article you wrote on Medium about navigating life without a map, and I want to talk about some of those things, um, but first of all, why don't you just tell the listeners who you are, a little bit about what your story is, and what it is you do now.
1: Sure, yeah, so I'm Paul, and I've been playing with how I say who I am, right? It's. I think we'll dive into this and the confusion around this and identity and work, But I've been telling people I'm a self-employed creator and I came from the corporate world and worked in strategy consulting for 10 years, was engineering and business in school, followed the very default path and did really well by other people's standards, uh, but always felt a bit off and two and a half years left to carve my own path and have found a path which feels right and is exciting. Um, and I've been trying to make sense of that and connect with others along the way in that sense-making process. But uh, I run a podcast called Reimagine Work. I run two courses: one called Reinvent, which helps people uh, contemplate a life beyond the default pl- path and their relationship with work, and uh, think like a strategy consultant, where I teach people more of the like analytical hard skills around telling stories, creating persuasive presentations, and do a little freelance consulting and kind of just what pays the bills and really just trying to design work around life.
0: So, yeah, we, you talked about that, you know, how do you just introduce yourself? I, I was for a long time a journalist and I loved introducing myself that way. Hi, I'm a journalist. And then I went into marketing and I became a little less interested in introducing myself that way. Hi, I'm in marketing because I didn't really like talking about marketing work that much. Um, <laughs> and now I like I told you before I hit record, I'm sort of in your in your program a little bit. I came across your writing because I'm reassessing my relationship to work and purpose and identity and all those things. So tell me, how did you go through that transformation? What what happened when you left the default path, as you say? Tell me that story. Growing
1: up, I was always a good student, which meant that if you're a good student, you're always getting praise and you're never really thinking about what you're lacking. So I was kind of always tracked along these paths, right? You go to a decent college, you go to a good major, you get good grades. And this went on and on, right? And I started getting access to good internships and kept raising the stakes of myself in this very traditional path and basically kept succeeding. Um, I worked at GE and then I decided I want to break into strategy consulting. Um, After getting rejected many times from consulting, I ended up landing a job in consulting. So in many ways, I was enjoying the work I was doing. I ended up going to grad school at MIT um, after, um, is when the first shift started happening for me. And so up until that point, I'd never really, I talked to a lot of self-employed creators and they often like have a difficult time in school or they have entrepreneurs or they kind of question their path early on. That never happened to me. What happened to me was right after I graduated from business school, like top of the world, I'm crushing it. Going to do a great job. Going to get paid well. Um, I became sick and started getting sicker over a series of months, and was eventually diagnosed with a couple tick-borne diseases and was treated for that. Had to take a leave of absence uh, from work for about four months because it was pretty intense, and slowly like worked my way back from work. So that was like a couple year process, and during that is when the bottom kind of fell out of my identity, I had been uh, successfully like embracing, right? Successful student, smart, curious, good at work, successful in the professional world. And then I was just sitting in my bed day after day after day after day, just trying Mm -hmm. to heal, right? And I mean, I dealt with depression, but I also dealt with just that sense of, what the hell am I doing, right? Is the whole thing is just work, right? And I kind of had pieces of this, but I couldn't ever articulate it or make sense of it. Um, So I think as I went back into the working world, for some reason, a lot of people that go through a traumatic experience say something like this, right? I was filled with this renewed energy, but in a different direction. Instead of trying to please people or do what's expected of me, it was like, here's things I'm really energized by. Coaching others, teaching others. How can I do those no matter what in these companies, right? Writing on the side. I started writing while I was sick to share my feelings with people. And that just seemed to be something I couldn't stop doing, right? But this was like 2013, 2014. People say, you can't just post publicly online. What what will your employer say? And I basically just kept ignoring that. And uh, that was the first big shift for me.
0: You, at one point, I think you worked at an executive search firm. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So I worked at a small consulting firm and then I worked at BCG um, in strategy consulting and then worked at Russell Reynolds, which did executive search. And that was kind of the last stop for me before I ended up taking the leap.
0: I'm really interested in this little anecdote you had about reviewing people's resumes. And I, because it seemed like you were right on the front lines of sort of how the business world finds its upper middle managers or its COOs or, or what have you. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to work for that search firm and what you learned about, you know, how we find these kinds of people to go, to go manage our companies for us?
1: At a high level, I think finding people and assessing talent is still mostly art and not science, except we pretend it's science and can be measured and we keep adding complexity to that. And I don't have a problem with that. I think at my core, though, I have this kind of like truth radar, which can only put up with so much nonsense. And I think what I experienced working in executive search is there's all these stories you tell around talent and why people are a good fit, right? You come up with these stories about this person is results driven. Um, and it seemed like I I had been studying like these um, alternative takes, right? There's a book called The Halo Effect and why good news makes anyone look talented, right? And it seemed like we just ignored the shadow side, right? I was also experiencing this at BCG where we pretend like we know these clear understanding of how we drive performance, except if you have any experience implementing projects, you know, things go haywire every time, right? So there was this disconnect. And I think what emerged for me was just this, I was just getting exhausted of uh, participating in this, right? It's very clear what you need to do um, to, succeed, right? You need to tell certain stories. You need to say things in a certain way, except your client knows you're making stuff up in a certain direction. You know, you're making stuff up, but it's all just like everyone's complicit, right? You, I mean, you might experience some of this coming from a journalism background or even marketing, right? You know what works, but then there's this like subtle, just nonsense that you're working on. And I think that just tore at me and I just didn't want to keep doing that for another 10 years.
0: Yeah. There's this saying in business, like no one ever got fired for hiring Microsoft, which to say people are in search of safety and certainty. So in business, this is what I've experienced, you know, all the big decisions are hard and and could be answered in multiple ways but we start surrounding those decisions with processes that make everyone feel more comfortable and safe about them even though they're sort of smoke and mirrors to some extent is that is that the same thing that you're talking about
1: yeah it seems like so much misery and suffering and nonsense could be saved in the business world if powerful leaders and I use leaders lightly here, would just be willing to admit they don't know what the heck they're doing or what's going to happen, right? And I think one thing that's helped me make sense of the business world is David White's writings. And he's a poet uh, who used to work in nonprofits and just decided he was going to become a poet and started just bringing language to the suffering in the corporate world, right? And this is where I discovered things, his phrase of like the pathless path, right? He also has this great quote, which says that um, this suffering and maybe what I was experiencing uh, 10 years into my career was not um, an actual suffering or struggle with what I was doing, but a deeper call for like rest, relaxation, or even a different life, right? And when framed like that, it's just so powerful, Um, And it's so scary to acknowledge that in the moment. So we tell ourselves all these stories like, I want to experiment to become a freelance consultant. Deep down, when I look back, I was scared for several years to go out my own. But I think I always had this and I even have this all the way back to my first internship in college. It's this instinct that like, I'm just not cut out for the things I was actually good at. And I'm trying to embark on a more pathless path as David Hoyt says, and try to figure out what is the life I actually want to design. Um, and that yeah, has been a journey you know, in I, itself.
0: I've seen so many, uh, you know, people who write about entrepreneurialism online, people who write about work, um, digital nomads, you know, and I've been guilty of this too. I, the the goal is always they say something that you just said, which is, you know, I was scared to go out on my own. And I've been trying to think recently, what is it about going out on your own that is different than working for someone else? I I have a sense it's actually profoundly different. Yeah. But what do you what do you think about that? Is that a goal in and of itself and, and why is it so so common an aspiration.
1: It is common. And that's a really interesting thing. If you talk to any college student, almost half of them will tell you some version of, I want to work in consulting, or I want to work in finance. I want to work here a few years, but ultimately my goal is to go out on my own and do my own thing. Yeah. People have been saying that for 20, 30 years. Why is no one doing it right? So I think there are a couple things. I think one is the benefits to following the default path are pretty damn good. And I know a lot of people that thrive in that environment. They love it. They love the structure. They love the the team aspects. They love working towards business goals. Um, It's not for me, but it works for many people. And uh, if you're getting 10% raises every year, And everyone in your family thinks you're successful. Your wife or partner or spouse likes the things you guys are spending your money on together. You get used to a certain life. Mm -hmm. Giving that up, we only look at it from like the money side, right? Giving that up seems crazy and it is. But I think people like you, it seems like you were thrown into it a little involuntarily, but maybe there were probably seeds planted um, for you. Um, people that are thrown into it or people that choose it themselves, it seems to be that there's something larger at stake. And I think what you hit on is totally spot on, which is that there is this profound shift. Maybe deep down I knew that this shift would happen. Like when I was thinking about taking the leap to become self-employed, I really just thought I'm going to shift from being a full-time consultant to a freelance consultant with a little more free time. My first seven, eight months, it blew my mind open. It was a total shift with how I related to reality. And it's really hard to explain to people. Um, and a lot of what I've been doing, talking to people, helping people navigate this, is really just trying to figure it out for myself. This seems totally different. I keep meeting people like you that are confirming this. Um, but it seems important, right? It seems like our past lives following a more traditional job and work, um, we're almost in this like large mass delusion about the deeper truths. And I mean, maybe you can help us out with some of the philosophical understanding of that.
0: <laughs> well, here's here's what I can't tell. Uh, I can't tell if this desire to go out on one's own is sort of like the desire to become an entrepreneur in the first place, which is right. to say that we've, glor- we've glorified it as a culture. You know, there's movies about it. There's so many of our heroes in the U.S. or people that we look up to are, are those kinds of people. They went out on their own. In the U.S., we have this deeply ingrained culture of individualism and individual achievement. And so what the, what I'm trying to find out is – is this desire to go out on my own socialized? Is this just something that I, that I think is a value because society thinks it's a value, but at the same time, and this one this probably isn't the first time I'm going to mention some ancient philosophical tomb, but sometimes I think about uh, Plato's Republic and he, he he said this thing a long time ago, people are either slaves or masters and you know we have an economy where most people are employees they're not the leaders they're not the masters and i wonder if it's true so i sometimes i wonder is it true that most people are just meant to follow they're meant to be employees it's a better fit for them they desire that safety ultimately and gasp am i one of those people who is just better fitted yeah. So, th- so those are the two poles I'm trying to figure out. Do I, do I value going out on my own because that's a cultural thing about America, or, 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 or should I actually just find another safe job to be in and earn that salary? How do you sort between those two things?
1: Yeah, that's interesting framing. I. I think
0: we clean. If it's wrong, tell me. No, no, I'm,
1: (laughs) I'm, I'm, I might not directly answer you, but I'm going to kind of play with this. But I think we're, we want labels, right? Everyone asks you what you do and it's just easier if you have a label and a story, right? So there's a certain element of that, which you need the story to find the other people on your journey with you. So you can like create cool shit together. Um, There's another story which basically gets you social approval. And I think this is the dangerous story, right? This is why people are serial entrepreneurs. It's always confused me. Like once you're successful and you've like earned enough money, why not just like mail it in and read books? And what I've realized is if you don't develop the capacity or capability to live a life, you can't actually just turn that switch on right? You need to cultivate that your entire life. And you see all these successful entrepreneurs who are burnt out or their lives are in shambles. They're almost screaming at people like, wake up. There's this guy Chamath. Um, I forget his last name, but he's got a fascinating interview with Kara Swisher where he talks about all these things. And he was like, I was blind. I, I made Tons of money. And he's telling people, like, don't follow this path or wake up a little, right? Uh, but people are not listening to him. It's almost like people still need to go and achieve that success because it's so high hardwired into our identity and approval um, that we need to do that before we can then start embarking on these like spiritual deeper uh journeys. Um, so I don't know if that directly answered it. Uh, But I I think that's definitely um, an interesting thing worth noting.
0: Yeah, the thing I'm trying to sort out is just basically how do you know which of the things that you care about are actually socialized into you? And just asking yourself that basic question, is this what I want or is this what's expected of me? I find a really difficult question to answer. Maybe you've grabbed, I know you've grappled with the same question because I've seen on your site what you ought to do, the the self self, that you ought to be. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? How do you tell the difference? Yeah.
1: So maybe we go back a little to just history, right? You you mentioned uh, Plato's Republic, right? In Greek times, work was still seen as an inherent bad. The ultimate aim, (laughs) Right. So it <laughs> yeah, was seen exactly. as a necessary something that needed that you needed to provide certain services, um, products, different things, right? But it was seen as an inherent bad right? Not a time you'd actually want to live. Like there were slaves, as you invoked before. Um, but the whole supreme aim was to spend time in leisure, like learning things and teaching others and spending time. Like contemplating life in an active sense of leisure. Over the last 2000 years, we don't have that anymore. So, work went from something that's bad to something that's good in the Protestant Reformation. And in that time, the Protestant Reformation, it was still tied to work is good because it contributes to your community, but also it's going to provide you salvation in heaven, right? Now, we've stripped away some of the religion. And work has almost become the religion itself, I think. And I think this is where it's dangerous. And you you see two groups of people that are suffering acutely, right? It is the creative class, people who have revolved their whole life around work, mostly because it's pretty interesting and cool work, but there's a loss of something deeper. And then like low-wage labor in the U.S., for example, literally can't plan their lives, can't find their schedule more than two weeks in advance, uh, if that, can't pay a living wage. And we have a cultural belief that work is the ultimate aim, right? Work is your worth, work is your value, work is virtuous. Except how can you create a culture around that where you have 10 million people not making a living wage, right? So you have that on one end and then people crushing it Financially, but totally lost because the work is the whole goal for them, and there's no like deeper sense of anything. Um,
0: right. So this is this is like one thing you and I really agree on: using work and money as a gauge of success is off. That's just that's messed. That's wrong. Is that right? Like, how do we fill in an alternative to that?
1: Well, I think you you don't need a long line of questioning to realize that things are off, right? If somebody yeah. in, I guarantee you've been in a conversation where this has happened. Somebody said, I'm going to be a teacher, right? And somebody has made a comment and said, oh, geez, teachers don't make good money, right? Have you been witness to a conversation like that or a social worker or something like that? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very common occurrence, right? That's pretty crazy. Like everyone also will acknowledge one question later, are teachers invaluable? Yes, of course. So we've just lost touch with this. And a lot of people look at this as like market problems, redistribution. It's really a belief issue. We haven't uh, built the structure or the protections to kind of protect um, the good work that we need. And then the other end, to kind of put limits on uh, the work that just kind of absorbs your life.
0: Well, the, the teacher's a good example because, and you've written about this, there's, there's two measures of success that society puts on. So, one is money and the other is prestige. Right. And... The teacher definitely has prestige, right? And I think back when I was a journalist and, you know, before media became any enemy of the people and all that, journalists also had some measure of prestige. Right. And, you know, some to some extent, they still do. Teachers definitely do. You know, there's some professions in the U.S. that definitely have that prestige. I used to work with a lot of doctors. I know some of them listen to this podcast. If there's one thing they've got, it's prestige. Right, yeah. And... I, but prestige is one of those things that's, it's a benefit conferred on you by other people. It's, it feels good because other people think it's good. It doesn't necessarily have any connection whatsoever to, uh, you know, your, what makes you truly tick inside. It's, it's something that if you keep getting prestige your whole life you can do without the money to some extent but you still might not find a purpose that is right for you because you're you're addicted to the prestige as well so both of those things money and prestige seem to me to be values that culture has imposed on us and i'm wondering how we how we really truly break out from from that you know what i'm talking about yeah
1: so i love that you brought up prestige i wrote an article about this as well i can send it to you to link up but sure we we think about hierarchies right hierarchies are inevitable and we're operating in that world right maybe one day we'll move to a networked world um i don't know what that looks like i can't predict the future but right now we operate in a hierarchical world Many people think these are power hierarchies, right? You gain more power and you move up. Really what most things are are prestige hierarchies. And these things work really well when prestige is tied to competence, right? So I think doctors is actually an interesting one because you have a pretty close link to prestige and competence. And they're paid well for that prestige and competence. And it's it's pretty closely aligned, right? Um, now, with teachers, if you're the most competent teacher, you may not be get paid any more than anyone that's much less com- much less competent, right? And then you have other industries where prestige is totally not connected to competence, right? So uh, we have these disconnects and. My takeaway is not like blow up the hierarchies, acknowledge they're there. I think people need to realize that these things are there and try to figure out what kind of prestige do you want. And for me, I've realized I want—I don't want the prestige of brands or title or rank. I actually want the prestige of being a generous person, right? So there's no nothing wrong with uh, prestige or pursuing these things. But if it's not aligned with what you want, and even worse, if it's not aligned with competence, you're going to feel lost because you're not working on anything challenging, right? And I think I experienced a little of this in consulting. You can get better, but sometimes the work is just a little disconnected from what's truly essential um, in helping a client, right? So a a lot there. I'll let you pause. Uh, I'll pause and you (laughs) can uh, react there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I want—I've always uh, wanted the prestige of being an author. Right. Or I think what the, the core value I'm looking at is impact. Like I want to impact and influence people's thinking. And for some reason, writing has always been the way that I I idolize to do that. I think, and I'm not sure where it comes from. Again, I, I'm not sure to what degree it's something that I've been socialized into, or to what degree. It's just something deeply innate within myself that would exist regardless but I've always idolized writers. Uh, many people in my family are writers and so that's that's the kind of prestige I've I've always sought if I if I go too long without publishing something that people read I, I start to really feel bad about myself Yeah so.
1: and we'll <laughs> think about if you went viral on something you really deep down think is crappy writing, right? That's going to lead to some inconsistencies and frustrations, I assume, right? You ideally want the thing you think is the best to get the prestige or attention, right? But that's often not how it happens for people. And I think when people double down on things that are not connected to what they really want, that's where people get into trouble.
0: So th- so how do you, you know, everyone needs to ultimately make a living, I you know, yeah. I like making money as much as the next person. So how do you, if you're a creator, if you create anything, how do you square your desire to keep creating with the, you know, the need to make that money? Because if, as soon as you write a viral piece or post a viral video that blows up, you think to yourself immediately, Oh, I should do more of that. Right. Cause that's working. But what if you didn't really like that piece deep down and you thought it was you know, sort of bullshit. Like, how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah. I've consciously tried to avoid that, <laughs> but it is, it is unavoidable, right? Um,
0: well, if your business model is like, you're a, you're a, you're on Patreon, for example, so you get paid for work created or even journalists deal with this, you know, your stories that get the most readership are the ones where your editor is going to say, well, let's do another one like that. And meanwhile, you're like, but I just wrote about, you know, cat videos on, on, (laughs) on Twitter. So that's, that doesn't do anything for anybody. Why would you want me to do more of that? And then the investigative reporting piece that illuminates some really complex, you know, issue that has the potential to affect people's lives doesn't go anywhere. And there's, so I I struggle with this. And I'm sure a lot of people do. Like, do you just play to the crowds in order to make your buck? Do you? There, filmmakers had a thing where they do one movie for the industry, one movie for themselves. You know, they just they their strategy is just to alternate. Do something that makes you money, then do something that gets you going in the morning.
1: I haven't really tapped into anything that's <laughs> leading me down a path of like an unstoppable riches. So maybe I, maybe I don't have this problem on this side, but I think one thing I've done in the first six months of going out on my own, I realized that this was a deeper journey and it was a deeper journey to create a life and to create space in a way that I could always take time away from what I was creating. Right. So on any day, can I go for a bike ride whenever I want, uh, for any month, or up to three months? Can I just not work for three months? And always having that in the back of my head. So I'm super con- conscience, conscious of not creating anything that becomes this thing I need to show up for every day. Um, yeah. Now, I've actually created things that I do need to show up for, but I'm excited about. And I'm doing it on a more short-term basis, right? So I'm leading a couple of courses this month and it's four or five calls for each course and it's a month. So I know for the next month, I'm excited about this, but I don't know what I'll do with it after that. So I think one thing that's helped me is before I took the leap, I kind of had this mindset of, okay, I saved this amount of money and this can pay for my cost of living for a year. And I dramatically lowered my cost of living and um, super minimalist, like I don't spend a lot of money now. So that's even longer now. And I've kind of made money and broke even along the way. So I always have this back in my mind that I have a year to play with if I need it, right? And I've happened to make money along the way. I've dipped into my savings and kind of lost money on my like net worth or whatever that means. Um, Mm -hmm. But it... I'm really trying to build something that's a sustainable life rather than a business. And having 10 years in the corporate world and being successful and working in elite levels of the business world, I know how to do stuff that makes money. Um, and I see paths for things I'm doing to make money. And I just know that's not the path for me, right? So I don't know what the path is. For me, maybe this is a good transition to talk about the article, but um, I kind of know what I don't want. Um, and maybe I'm lucky because I reached some level of like success and I know that's not what I'm trying to recreate. And maybe it's just an inner rebel in me. I don't know. But yeah. I am uh, just super conscious of that every single day when I'm opting into stuff.
0: Every once in a while, I want to do one more thing, then talk about the pathless path. Um, but every once in a while, I run up against this divide. And it's truly a divide between people who have kids and those who don't have kids. And in, you don't have kids, right? No. I, I, have, I have kids. And I remember when uh, I had my son, my attitude towards work and money changed. And all of a sudden, it was, well, I'm, I have to work. I have to make money. I have to work. It doesn't matter what the work is. It doesn't matter what the money is. I have this deep biological responsibility to provide for them. Right. And I think a lot of people that have kids feel, well, this is the most cliche observation to make in the world, but they feel trapped. And they, they have even they have this, there's a really high bar to being able to take a year off without any expectation of how they're going to make money afterward. And I can imagine a lot of parents hearing that advice going, well, easy for him to say, <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't have kids to take care of. Have you worked with parents in your career coaching or have you, have, do, is there any insight you've gained into how a parent might approach that problem yeah
1: many uh many parents with kids um interviewed several for my podcast mostly because I'm curious about this and I think I want kids one day um and mm. I wanted so what do they want to design life in the same way and I think you ask every parent what does your child want of you they never list work in the first few things right I've never met a six-year-old that wants an elite education I've never met,
0: that, right? I want to be a fireman or a space master. I've is. never
1: met a six-year-old that needs a five-star resort. I've never met a six-year-old that needs a new car, right? So there's some obvious things like I want to take off the table right away. Um, I do want to acknowledge, I think there is a biological nerve, um, biological drive to provide, right? Any parent has that. And I think there's a bit of hope there too right I almost see it as a blessing I know if I had kids I'd probably be more successful with my current life because that would really raise the stakes and make me take it serious I'd probably structure it more um, try to devote certain time each day but I'd still want to design around um, doing a being like the best parent I could be right and I'd I, I can't even pretend to start to understand this because I think it will fundamentally change me. So I'm really interested to see what I think about this 10 years from now. Um, But I've talked to many parents and many parents end up reframing the risk, right? The risk is not uh, what if I fail? It's what if I am not the best person I could be? in these limited years. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I have a friend who writes about this, K he, and he left his investment banking job at like late thirties, I think, and did all these things left. And he's running a business now. I think he's breaking even or losing money and he's really grappling with this. Right. Because that's the narrative he was brought up with. Um, So I don't think this thing goes away, but I think this gets back to our first conversation, um, our first question, which is that there is this profound shift. Um, You're not just going to drop the ball, right? And this is what researchers have found about regrets. Your ought to self is your, you shouldn't quit your job, right? But your ideal self is you imagine you could be a better person. What they found is that your ought to self actually doesn't have a lot of regrets because if you drop the ball you actually fix it right you seem like a pretty responsible person i doubt you're just gonna like sit there and not get any work and be like well this is the path i have to follow right you're you're gonna take ownership and i tell people i'd get a full-time job if i had to and like i'm not gonna let my children starve um yeah, I don't, I don't know where I was going with that. But I, yeah, I've talked to a lot of parents. Um, I've talked to parents who have taken a year, traveled with their kids abroad. I've talked to parents who have lived um, in overseas with their kids. Oftentimes, they find that the cost of living and selling their house or putting it up in Airbnb, they actually like break even or make money, right? There's so many different ways of living.
0: Yeah, I think maybe what you're getting at is that Society obviously expects us to, to provide for our kids, and obviously we, we all feel deeply that we want to and should provide for our kids. Um, but the, the default path to doing that is to do the safest possible thing. And the fear we have of doing something that's more risky is that we won't be able to provide for our kids maybe as well. But if you step back from that, realize that you will end up providing for your kids anyway. None of us are going to let our kids starve in the streets or go homeless.
1: Yeah. Plus anyone will hire you knowing you have kids and you're like not able to feed them. They're not going to give me a job out of pity, right? <laughs>
0: um, yeah. So exactly. So, so, so what is the pathless path? To, what What is that? And where, where'd you come across it? Yeah. Explain that.
1: So the pathless path is a phrase I stole from David White.
0: And he, um,
1: I can pull up the quote and quote it in a second, but it's pretty much embracing like we, we think there are these paths, right? You go into journalism and I don't know, I don't even know what the paths are, but I'm sure you could tell me what the like order of operations is, right? You're like a a writer, then a senior writer, then a junior editor, then an editor, then a managing editor, right? There's all these paths. Um, except they're not real, right? Especially in journalism, right? You could be laid off at any second these days. It, the pathless path is really acknowledging there is no path, but just acknowledging that there's a natural, okay, what are we doing six months from now? Business wise, I have no idea. I hope some of the stuff I'm working on is still working, but two and a half years now, I know I'll figure it out now. And I've tried working in enough ways that I know I can slot into different um, modes of working. So I'll read the quote and then we can uh, dive in further. Yeah. It can be a release then to think that when we first come across the idea of a pathless path, by definition, we are not meant to understand what it means. It's like,
0: so what does that mean?
1: (laughs) I I don't (laughs) think we're supposed to understand it. Right. I, and
0: yeah, so wherever you're heading in life or you know time as I said, time moves on, whether you do something with your day or not. And so whatever it is you're doing, it's possible that we're not meant to understand that. Is that, is that the just Yeah of that? so
1: I mean David White's a poet, and he's trying to bring alive things that have you have trouble describing with language, right? And I think what he's getting at is that there's an inherent uncertainty to the way the world works. I think even full-time employees can honestly tell you deep down they don't know what's going to happen five years from now. Many jobs are in danger of being automated or super tech, being turned into super technology jobs, right? They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if they'll be fired. Everyone in their life has tons of people in their life who've been laid off like you. We don't know what the path looks like. Being self-employed amplifies this, right? It makes it the center Some people cave under that uncertainty and go running back, right? And I think that's a great idea, like if you're not prepared for it. But I love the idea of a pathless path because it's like, I'm never going to fully know. Um, But that's also what led me to kind of try and make sense of what a journey looks like. And what I've stumbled on is there is no one path, but there's kind of phases people go through that, could be over seven years. It could be over ten years. It could be over six months. Uh, but it seems that people resonate with these, um, and I'm happy to dive into the four stages.
0: Yeah. So tell me about the four stages, and because this is, it's a little bit of a mini ad for your for your course, <laughs> but I think that's fine, right? Let's t- tell me what the four stages are, and then we can talk some more about it. Yeah.
1: So I, I mean, the pathless path in the course. I don't know how that's gonna end up going after I do this live cohort and may not run it for several months. But um, the first phase is restlessness, right? So many people are experiencing this and it's this urge that something's off, right? Some people deal with this with just finding a different job, making a career change, going to grad school, taking a year off. Um, eventually, there's some shift that happens, right? Could be a health crisis like with me could be meeting a new friend. It could be reading a book. It could be having a psychedelic experience as many people are having these days. Um, It opens up your mind in a new direction to a new conversation, right? A new way of life. Like these hints that maybe there's something down there that you could explore and people start experimenting a little. And then at some point people are just like, that's something I'm going to move towards. That's kind of the third phase. This is like the first steps. Um, And this could take years. I think for me, those first three phases were probably, the restlessness was probably for 10 years from the beginning of college and internship um, Mm -hmm. to be getting sick. And then when I was recovering that was kind of my imagination saying, okay, maybe there is a different path. Maybe I should be thinking about that. Maybe my health isn't going to be stable and I need to think, rethink life. Um, then imagination was like probably another four years of experimenting on the side, trying things, volunteering, doing pro bono consulting, doing experimental career coaching, writing. Um, and I started getting all these sim- signals that it's like, I should start experimenting a little more um yeah and eventually like it took me two to three years from somebody saying you should go do this to actually taking the leap um and that's kind of the first steps right and that was probably my first six to nine months and then uh i took i was able to land a bunch of clients make money take away that like insecurity of not being able to make it work And then I took a few months off and started creating things. I created my podcast, launched my blog. And I realized I'm on a deeper journey. And this is like a five-year journey. and something I want to commit to. So it was that commitment. Um, And that's kind of where I am now. And I think the interesting thing I found, I've gotten a lot of feedback on this article I wrote. I think there's almost like a long-term cycle this happens on and then a short-term cycle. So there's like these mini four phase experiences, maybe one specific project over three months or six months or a side hustle or something you're involved in at work. And then there's like the longer term um, shift, which I imagine I don't know what phase I'm at now. And this is kind of the pathless path um, metaphor. Yeah, I don't know where I am, but I imagine I'm on some like five to 10 year journey, which I'll look back 10 years from now and it will be crystal clear like where I was. Um, so I think that's the uncertainty in it. It's a map, but you may not know where you are right now.
0: So yeah, so this is an article I'll definitely link to because I do think everyone should go read it. It's called Navigating Life Without a Map. Uh, my mom always used to joke, you know, there's no guidebook for being a parent and you don't know if you did it right until 30 years <laughs> later, um, which I think is sim- you know, it's, it's a similar sentiment, and the four steps you just outlined are the steps that you describe in this article on you know how to do it so number 1 restlessness number 2 imagination you know imagining a new way of thinking number 3 taking your first steps and number 4 committing to something and it does feel to me like this is probably cyclical you know it's not like you leave a job and do this once and then you're good to go you're on your path again the whole point is that you might not know what path you took until you're able to look back with hindsight on it but this this metaphor really resonated with me and i wrote something similar about it on on my blog about a hike through denali that i took and you read that and yeah one one of the one of the things i think i realized hiking through denali where there are no trails and there are no campsites And you can go anywhere you want is that the whole metaphor of a life path, I think, is can be quite misleading for people uh, because it suggests that if you just wander through the forest long enough, then you'll find it. Or if only you headed in a different direction, you'll find it. And it could be that there just are no paths out there and that you just go in the direction you go. And you never know if it's the right direction or not. And um, that's been a scary thing for me to embrace. I'm probably not 100% on board yet yeah. <laughs> with living my life that way. I still look for guideposts along the way. I still look, am I heading in the right direction? And again, I never know if those guideposts are, you know, were put there by society and are just wrong or if they were put put there to so society and so I should pay attention to them you know or or what have you so
1: yeah and i think that's the core of it right there right i'm not i think too many people think i'm like arguing against work i'm only arguing that we need to like broaden our imagination a little wider and have a little humility that we may not have figured out the whole work thing yet right mm-hmm. <laughs> we're only 200 plus years into this whole like full-time job thing It's very new, right? I think we're still making it up. I think when we look back 50 years from now, we'll realize that everything we're doing now is pretty crazy. Just like we look back 70 years ago and it was only a certain type of man that could work in business and there was sexual harassment. And it's pretty terrible looking back at what work was, right? Um, But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's hard, but I think it's worth at least contemplating that life might not be a straight trajectory. And I think that comes from a certain time in history in which certain people could basically for like a short period in time, I think fulfillment and happiness and money and career trajectory were all aligned. Right. And I'm thinking about writing something around this. It hasn't, fully crystallized for me yet, but I think they were all aligned. And for like 20 years, it worked for certain types of people, mostly men. Um, And then that's not the reality anymore, but we haven't come up with a new story because it's a lot messier. And I'm just trying to reimagine. I don't have the answers. Um, I'm trying to figure it out every day in my own path, but I just think it's worth contemplating. I love having conversations with people like you because of this, because we don't know, right. We're trying to figure it out too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I wish more people would just kind of question these things and leave space for a little more humility.
0: Well, Paul, is there anything else that I should ask you because we're coming up on an hour and I want to be respectful of your time?
1: <laughs> I know you like to aim for a half an hour, so I won't uh, <laughs> take up, um, any more time, but this is a highly enjoyable conversation. Um, yeah, I my something that drives me is having conversations like this with people. And another David White thing is like finding the conversation that's bigger than yourself. Uh, so if you'd love to have a conversation, literally just find my site and find the curiosity conversation link. And so where should I have people a few go those,
0: to learn more about you?
1: Yeah. Think boundlesscom And you can find the Curiosity Conversation, send me an email, sign up for the newsletter. I love kind of engaging with people and learning along this journey. So um, dream bigger,
0: everyone. All right, Paul. Thanks for uh, coming on the show. Awesome.